It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Michael Reed Show. Wednesday morning, the 23rd of October. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The United Kingdom will not be leaving the EU on the 31st of October. Following a remarkable day in the House of Commons yesterday, it is now inevitable that there will be a Brexit extension and more likely a general election in the UK and possibly as soon as the 12th of December. All of this has been overshadowed here by a state apology to those affected by the cervical check debacle and by what has become the scandal of phantom voting in the dog. It is imperative that we get to the facts without any delay to restore public confidence in our voting system. The issue was raised first thing by Ciam Corla, Sean O'Farrell yesterday afternoon and the topic extended into leaders' questions. It is because of the gravity of our decisions, the reach of our decisions, that we must be present and voting. That's why it's spelled out so explicitly in the Constitution and in standing orders. The behaviour of Fianna Fáil TDs has discredited the doll. It conveys a complete lack of regard for the Oireachtas and the institutions of governance. It demonstrates, above all, an absolute disrespect for those who have elected you and those that you represent. But it's even more serious than that. Because if the behaviour of the Fianna Fáil TDs represents a pattern of behaviour in that party, then it calls into questions the validity of decisions and votes taken here. Mary Lou MacDonald, there was some political point scoring yesterday and at times it was more subtle than at other times, but nonetheless, points were being scored. I think the deputy asked some very pertinent uh, and very relevant questions that deserve an answer. Unfortunately, I can't give you that answer because I can't speak on behalf of Fianna Fáil members or indeed any uh, individual member uh, in, in this House. Um, but it is, uh, I think, agreed by all of us that an investigation is required. The Count Corral has announced that that investigation is going to be carried out by the Clerk of the Dáil and that we'll have a report this week. Uh, separate to that, I understand that uh, some members of the public have made a complaint under the Ethics Acts and that will result in a statutory investigation uh, to be held by the Committee on Procedure and Privileges. The Taoiseach, Leo Radker, speaking in the Dáil yesterday. Gavin Riley is uh, Virgin Media News' political correspondent and 
and a political columnist with uh, the Mead Chronicle. He's on the line. And a very good morning to you, Gavin. And morning, thanks Michael. for joining us. Uh, you're writing extensively about this in the Mead Chronicle this week mm. about what has become known as Vote Gate and how you were baffled and somewhat alarmed, as you put it, when you first noticed TDs voting without actually being in their seats. Uh, this was the first time you sat in the press gallery in the Dáil. Yeah, yeah, I've I've been a reporter in in the in Leinster House physically in the building for about six years now, and and when you go there, that all of these things are a novelty, so you start to attend things which are otherwise pretty mundane or pretty routine, or or which you could otherwise follow by the internal uh, TV feeds. And one of the first things that I went to go and see was the 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 weekly electronic voting block. Now it wasn't done in block at the time; votes could be called at any time, day or night. But one of the first times that a vote was proceeding, I went inside and I just went to look at it because I wanted to see what it was like in the flesh. And it became pretty obvious very quickly that the usual sort of rigorous standards that a lot of people outside of Leinster House might have expected to be conducted for votes of people making sure they were sitting in in completely the right vote and having absolute decorum and pressing their button and sitting quietly, that it was a little bit more casual than that. And to some degrees, that's sort of understandable because Leinster House has had electronic voting now since 2002. So it's, it's nothing new to many of the people that are inside the room. But it was striking that a lot of people were actually casting their votes without sitting in the seats to which they were assigned. Now, the more you see it, the more you understand that there isn't really any obvious harm to that, because the reason why they're doing it is because, uh, say, if it's a, a Fine Gael backbencher and they've been trying to nail down a minister for five minutes all week to try and get hold of them to talk about um, a particular constituency issue, for example, then that backbencher might find themselves sitting down beside the minister and unable to vote from their own seat. Because mm. if they were to vote from their own seat, they would have to abandon the conversation and go back. And that might be the last time they ever get a chance to, to nail that minister down for a few minutes. So it sort of becomes the established culture that if you can't sit to your own seat or that if you're sort of elsewhere occupied within the chamber, that you might just grab the attention of someone who sits beside your own regular seat and flag mm-hmm. them down and basically say, you know, Air Allen up there, would you mind just pressing my button on your behalf? And that's it. And ultimately, no harm done. And they're fulfilling the constitutional requirement of being in the chamber, behind the closed doors, behind the locked doors, although somebody else is pressing the button on their behalf. Uh, the big problem came about last week uh, when Timmy Dooley was outside of the chamber, outside of the closed locked doors, and uh, Niall Collins was inside, pressing his button and did so on six occasions. Yeah, and, and of course the, the, the constitution says present and voting, and just before we to, to, to Timmy Dooley, a lot of people might say, well, obviously you have to be present and voting, and that's why Timmy Dooley, having voted cast while he was outside of the room, is, is a major problem. And um, Others would say that it says present and voting, and, and technically speaking, one could argue that if you are not the one pressing your own button, then someone else, you know, albeit with your blessing, might be voting on your behalf, and that could also raise some concerns, but that, that's neither here nor there for the yeah. time being. Uh, as you rightly say, Yes, the, the problem that, that has arisen in this instance, and um, a point which has been slightly muddied by the subsequent uh, mud-flinging between the two major parties, is that in the instance of Lisa Chambers, who voted on behalf of Derek Leary, purportedly by accident, and in the case of Niall Collins, who knowingly pressed the button of Timmy Dooley six times, uh, apparently on the belief that he was at the back of the room, and in fact he wasn't there at all, um, it is an entirely different issue, because as, as the old uh, cliche or the old maxim goes, Michael, decisions are made by those who show up. And if someone is a member of Dáil Éireann and they simply choose to, that their time is better used being outside of the chamber doing other things, then they shouldn't also have the right to actually cast decisions the same as those who have dutifully made their way into the chamber. Now, others might argue that there, there ought to be a case for uh, what's called 
excuse me, what's called proxy voting. Uh, certainly they only recently introduced this in Westminster because there's been a couple of high-profile cases where for those big Brexit votes, MPs have had to come back in out of uh, chemotherapy wards and people who are gravely ill having to go back into to, to Westminster to cast their own votes. So they've only just introduced proxy voting. But as you said, in the Constitution here, it says present and voting, which means that it actually isn't possible to cast a vote unless you are present in the room, and that means that this isn't something that can be tolerated. Mm. And that could only be changed through a referendum. Precisely, yeah, Mm -hmm. and I think if people having a referendum to sanction slightly more sloppy voting practices on behalf of TDs, I don't think would ever be much of a runner. Okay, Uh, so we have half of the TDs who say they engage in this behaviour which is in a a grey area where they press the button on behalf of somebody else uh, but they're in the chamber. Uh, But uh, we're seeing all kinds of accusations being made now at this stage and it's become particularly serious, hasn't it? Well, it's become very unedifying, really, because uh, it seems that an awful lot of time was spent in the last couple of days by different Fianna Fáil operatives and, in turn, by different Fine Gael operatives, where where Fianna Fáil have basically been doing a mass trawl of all the footage of Dáil votes that they can basically find for the last two years, trying to point out instances where it looks as if a vote was cast on behalf of the minister, when, in fact, there is no proof that the minister is in the room. Uh, One example, by the way, is, is... Regina Doherty of Meath East, who, uh, you know, Fianna Fáil were circulating mm. details and they've made a submission to the Dawes Ethics Committee saying that Regina Doherty cast a vote while she wasn't in the chamber. But then you go to, to Regina Doherty's team and her spokesperson and you say, well, you know, is, is there any truth to this? Was Regina Doherty in the room? And they say, well, actually, if you go back and look at that footage and if <laughs> yeah. you, you freeze the frame mm. at three hours, 46 mm. and 23 seconds, what you'll actually see is Regina Doherty's skirt and boots as she walks behind Eamon Ryan. Because, and that proves, therefore, that she was actually inside the chamber at all. And that is true. They are Regina Doherty's skirt and boots. I, I, I dread and I pity the poor person in her press team who had to identify her based on her footwear on that particular mm. day. But this is the sort of level that we're getting at now where Fianna Fáil are, you know, in, to some degree in an attempt simply to distract her, to try and drag other people and implicate them into the same bad behaviour, are trying to suggest that they are not the only ones who are who have been caught red-handed in this. Uh, but every time there's any evidence presented to a Fine Gael minister, they are able to point to some very distant shot where in fact you can tell that their minister was in the back of the room after mm. all. And Regina already is one of five Fine Gael ministers uh, who's been accused uh, of not being in the House. Yeah, uh, Damien English being another one mm-hmm. and it's also, mm-hmm. aside from the, the, the malicious side of the suggestions that some ministers are, are voting while they're also not present, there are other examples of people who just absentmindedly because they appear not to realise which seat they're supposed to be sitting in uh, of pressing buttons that they're not expected to. One example being uh, the Louth TD, the former Sinn Féin leader, Gerry Adams, who um, in one of the first votes ahead of the referendum on the Eighth Amendment last year, um, when he was newly a backbencher and wasn't used to sitting uh, anywhere other than the front seat of the Sinn Féin bloc, accidentally sat in the seat belonging to Pater Tabin and pressed the button on behalf of Pater Tabin, which we all noticed immediately because, of course, Pater Tabin would never have voted in favour of sanctioning a referendum on the repeal of the Eighth Amendment. It turned out that Jerry Adams wasn't used to sitting in the backbenches, had sat in the wrong seat and went about correcting the record afterwards. But So people would be surprised to hear just how common it is for there to be such sloppy practice that people don't genuinely realise which seat they're supposed to be sitting in. Shane Ross, another mm-hmm. example, who accidentally voted against his own drink driving bill uh, last year because he accidentally sat in the seat belonging to Captain's opponent, realised his mistake towards the very end, but in a clumsy effort to try and put it right, ended up casting a vote against his own bill from the seat in which he was sitting. Okay, some people will say this is a storm in a teacup. Others will say it's very serious because it compromises the integrity of the voting system in our parliament. But either way, it needs to be sorted out, doesn't it? Yeah, and I mean, I can understand people who think this is a bit of a storm in a teacup or or think it is your 
your archetypical uh, bubble story that it only matters to the people in Leinster House because it's just political mudflinging and that there are much bigger issues in the world. And I, and I understand that point and I sympathise with it to a degree. But one has to make the point as well that if this were to happen outside the Dáil Chamber, if you had a situation where in a local authority election or in a general election where somebody goes into the ballot box or goes into the polling station and casts two votes, one on behalf of themselves and one on behalf of someone else who might live in their house or live on their road who just hasn't bothered showing up to vote. That's electoral fraud and it's a crime and no one would ever stand over it and it wouldn't be permissible just because the election was going to be a runaway success anyway. I mean, the, the, the integrity of the electoral process has to be sacred. And the same is true of the Dáil. I mean, there have been votes in the present Dáil which have only been broken by the casting vote of the Count Corda because the numbers are so tight that sometimes the government can be within one vote of getting defeated on pretty significant stuff. And it does go to the heart of how laws are actually drawn up in this country if we can't actually trust the outcome of votes in the Dáil. Because what happens, you know, people might say, mm. you know, this is a, a bubble story, you know, why aren't you talking about hospital overcrowding yeah. or uh, gender violence or all these other things, all of which are absolutely worthy topics. But someone at some point is going to come along with a proposed solution for hospital overcrowding, and it's probably going to require the Dáil to either pass a new law or to uh, sanction an extra budget or what have you. And if that solution then ends up going to the Dáil and it's passed by 79 votes to 78, yeah, with only one vote in the difference, and we can't be entirely sure whether all 79 people were actually in the room, then we have a serious problem that goes to the very heart of how decisions are made. And it's the sort of thing which has to be nipped in the bud and can't just be allowed to be swept under the carpet until such mm. a time as there's a serious decision to be made. The, yeah. the procedures have to be rigorous and they have to be upheld now. Uh, and when legislation is passed, those laws could end up being challenged uh, as yeah, a, a there, result there, of There's these. been talk that mm. there wasn't any, any knife-edge votes on it, but there has been talk of some of the, the, the uh, very vigorous uh, anti-abortion groups now mm. going back and trawling over the footage of all of the door votes pertaining to that referendum and all the subsequent legislation, hoping that they might be able to point at a particular flaw or to uh, to launch a legal challenge in some way, mm-hmm. which only goes to show exactly what the stakes are when we're talking about sloppy practices inside the door. Okay, this isn't a crime, as I understand it, uh, because uh, no. there isn't a, a criminal offence in line with the Constitution, but it is unconstitutional, yeah. and there may be sanction, and uh, the TDs may face a 30-day suspension as a result of of their behaviour. This uh, comes uh, on foot of the announcement uh, that there will be by-elections on the 29th of November. We could see elections in the UK next month or in December, as I was saying earlier on. Mm-hmm. Uh, could all of this feed into the timing of a general election here? Well, there was definitely a sense yesterday that the mudflinging and, and the propaganda war between Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil had become so severe that it was very, very difficult to see how a confidence and supply arrangement could withstand all of that, because Sinn Féin had been standing on the sidelines being a little bit pious, saying, you know, you'd never catch us doing that sort of thing. If Sinn Féin decided maliciously in the first week of January to come back and table the motion of no confidence, or even if, if they were to do it today or tomorrow, um, relations are so strained between Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil that it would be very, very difficult to ever imagine Fianna Fáil trooping back into the Dáil chamber and abstaining to ensure that a Fine Gael government was able to survive that bit longer. Like, it, it, there is a mm. de- genuine feeling of things being at the end of their natural lifespan, and the, the mutual loathing between the two big parties is now so profound that it's, it's honestly difficult to see how it would last that much longer. But... The events at the House of Commons last night have effectively made it impossible to call a general election this side of Christmas because now that Boris Johnson isn't able to meet his own Halloween deadline, 
there's too many variables at play. Is it going to be a full three-month extension is, or is it going to be another one of these so-called flex extensions where they might be able to leave a little bit earlier if that's what they want to do? Um, if Brexit ends up not happening until the end of November, then no one can say for certain that Brexit has been, inverted commas, solved or fixed until the end of November or the first week of December, by which time it's too late to call a general election because you'd end up holding it over Christmas. And that's that's not a runner either. So basically, if Leo Varadkar wanted to really hold an election in November, he'd have to call it in the next week or two. uh, And the end of November might be a quiet time as far as Brexit is concerned, but he would have to call that election at a time of massive flux and uncertainty. And if the whole pretense of calling this early election was that Leo Varadkar could go to the public base mm-hmm. in the glow of having secured a Brexit deal. That completely goes out the window if he's actually going down to Orson Ucleron to ask for the election at a time when nobody knows exactly what's going to happen. So uh, mm-hmm. basically the, the, the outcome of, the, the, of that programme vote in the House of Commons last night was, was quite curious because if it passed, there was going to be a general election here and if it failed, there was going to be a general election in the UK and it looked as if it would be those in the UK and north of the border who'd be going to the polls before those within South get to do it either. All right, uh, let's uh, just talk uh, about uh, the state apology. We'll hear some of what Leo Varadkar had to say uh, a little bit later on in uh, the programme, but uh, I think the Taoiseach is generally good at this kind of thing, uh, and uh, there certainly was uh, a lot of satisfaction with what he said, with Vicky Phelan describing it as a watershed moment, uh, but uh, some health service staff not too happy uh, when uh, the Taoiseach said that they were deceitful. Yeah, well, and, and this is this is part of the problem because every time that someone tries to play politics with a story like this, then those who are actually responsible with the operation of the health service end up getting a bit upset either. And this is not, of course, the first time that there has been this sort of clash between politicians and practitioners when it comes to cervical check. We, we remember uh, a couple of years ago when this all blew up, part of the reason why it was so controversial is that the government had previously announced that it would legislate for what's called mandatory open disclosure, this idea that if you knew there had been, you know, failings or or, or wrongful actions in the course of somebody's care, that you would have a legal duty to tell them up front straight away. That was an official government proposal. It was government policy. Then it was binned. And no sooner was it binned, then we suddenly discovered that there were these 221 women who had been uh, wrongfully given the all clear in smear tests, who were later discovered to have had problems with their smears altogether and were never informed of same. And this, of course, is still a problem. That the government has said in the aftermath of this, oh God, our original proposal was right all along, we'd better go and legislate for that. And the government to this day still has not legislated to force open disclosure, despite that still being government policy. So it goes to illustrate how there has always been this sort of conflict between those who have to make sure that the public are pleased and to make it all look like the state is taking all these concerns seriously. And yet on the other side as well, those who equally are responsible for running the health system. And this is what brings us to the comments yesterday uh, from, from Leo Varadkar because he commented that there was uh, a certain amount of deceit involved in these women where they weren't told the full story of their own medical records. Uh, those involved in the health service say that actually acu- accusing the health service of deceit now makes it very difficult to defend other cases where the state genuinely may have done nothing wrong. And it also goes to imply that the health service deliberately went out of its way to, to hide these people's records or to mislead them when someone, many in the health service would say that that is not true, that it's an unfair conclusion for Leo Varadkar to raise. So th- there's all sorts of political ramifications to it. Mm-hmm. One could also talk about the timing of yesterday's apology. Certainly there's a certain amount of, of choreography in timing like this because you need to make sure that the likes of your Vicky Phelans or Stephen Teeps or Lorraine Walshes are in the doll chamber and that takes a little while to arrange. But equally, there are law cases involving all of this still going on. The Ruth Marcy case is still before the court. In fact, 
yesterday afternoon at the time that Leo Varadkar was on his feet offering a state apology on the floor of Dáil Éireann there was another cervical check case going through the courts where counsel for the state was on their feet arguing against the responsibility of the state or the government. So many would question why yesterday was, was chosen as a particularly worthy time to do it. Nonetheless, I'm sure those who attended in the public gallery did think that it was worthy to hear Leo Varadkar stand on his feet and offer an apology on behalf of the nation. But they might like to think that, that words are all well and good, but that actions would speak louder than words. When it comes to actions, the government hasn't quite managed to atone for itself and how all of this has been handled. Okay. It's an ongoing issue, undoubtedly so, uh, but we'll leave it there for the moment. We'll hear some of uh, that apology, as I say, later in the programme. And Gavin, thank you for joining us, as always. Gavin Riley, political correspondent with Virgin Media News and political columnist with The Mead Chronicle. The Michael Reed Show. Well, nice dry weather the last couple of uh, days. Hopefully it'll stay that way. I'm sure potato farmers will be hoping that's the case more than others because mature potatoes are sitting in wet ground and run the risk of rotting. This is because of twice the average amount of rainfall in August and September. And Thomas McCone, chairperson of the IFA Potato Committee, joins us now. And a very good morning to you and uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, Thomas, uh, 30% of uh, the crop has been harvested so far uh, that's uh, about half what is normally harvested by this stage and 70% of all of uh, the potatoes are at risk I take it. Yes Michael good morning, thanks for t- for ringing me. Yes it is um, we have we have um, we've had very heavy rain there in August and September twice the national average and it has had a knock on effect now Back then, the ground could take it, but now the ground is saturated, and um, unfortunately, that's a it's a problem every farmer faces. And from from Donegal down to Kerry is, mm. is uh, hassle in fields. Uh, and is it too late to some extent, or if we were to get a, a good dry spell, would uh, that save the day? A dry, a good, a good, a very good dry spell would save the day. It would, in fairness, it would. But it's just as I say. It is the ground conditions are just so bad. Plus, as well, we, we farmers, have, in fairness, have diversified the last few years. They're growing different varieties, and some of them are very late mature. And this is where we're getting caught out. From where, from where, where farmers are going for quality now more than quantity. So this is where you suffer in these things. So it is. Mm. Uh, and they're losing out uh, because uh, they're later uh, in the year before they mature. What's uh, the upshot of this? Uh, what's the expectation at this stage in terms of what might be harvested? 30% so far. Uh, do you expect uh, to get to uh, 60% or more? Oh, we would hope so. We would. We would. We're not crying wolf now or anything like that. But, um, but we're just stating the fact that the weather is so bad. Look, it all depends, Michael, on how... Before the weather comes over the next few weeks, just rain, given given rain for afternoon today and very heavy rain on Friday. And ground doesn't need that. Ground mm. doesn't need that. And the problem at the minute is, is you have fields with low-lying, low-lying fields that water is lying, they're waterlogged, and you have potatoes rotting in the ground. And then, of course, when you come to the harvest and the machinery is getting bigger, when you go into the fields, you can't lift this up. And uh, there will be losses. Mm. Will be us as our our national acreage is the same as is more or less on par with last year, and uh, there could be there could be shortages going forward. I'm not saying that there will, but there there could be. As I say, we're highlighting the fact that um, 
conditions are so bad at the minute. Mm. Uh, and you're suggesting as well, I think, that that could result in potatoes being 10% more expensive for people. It could. It could. But it has the potential to do that. But uh, I wouldn't be... It's not on our interest either have potatoes too dear, our product too dear, because people then don't... There's a fine line. People won't buy if they're too dear. We have to look after our customers as well. And uh, there's a there's a, a fair price for it that we'd be looking for all the time. Okay. We're not we're not looking for we're we wouldn't be looking for big prices all the time, so we wouldn't. Okay, but it's uh, as a, a result of uh, the heavy rainfall uh, the last couple of months. Uh, we'll leave it there for the moment, Thomas. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Thomas McKeown is uh, the chairman of the IFA Potato Committee. Now, Wednesday morning, meaning your local papers are available to you. They're in the news agents. We have them here with us. Marie Kearns is uh, taking a look at uh, the front pages for us today, as usual. And we're going to begin in Drogheda with uh, the Drogheda Independent, which has a feature on housing. That's right, Michael. Ratmullen Housing Boom is the lead story of the Drogheda Independent. Hubert Murphy is writing that the whole face of the Ratmullen Road and Sheep House area is set to change after a 10-year plan and application was submitted to onboard Panola under a strategic housing development proposal for 661 new houses. Under the plans, it's envisaged that the development will see an extra 1,782 people moving into the area. So that's a huge mm. investment there. Meanwhile, Michael, being a blues woman, I have to mention the picture on page one of the Drahad Independent of the new town Blues celebrating after winning the Loud Senior Championship on Sunday, making it three in a row. So okay. great celebrations there. Uh, jobs boost uh, making for the front page of uh, the That's Dundalk right. Democrat this yes, week. Yes, it's a good news story there on the front page with the news that Chinese farmer group Wuxi Biologics is to expand, bringing a further 200 jobs to Dundalk. According to the paper, the company has already commenced building a 325 million factory on their site in Dundalk which is fantastic news for the town and then the Argus is also leading Michael with that same jobs boost for Dundalk. Inside the paper there's a two page spread on the commemoration ceremony to mark the 101st anniversary of the tragic sinking of the SS Dundalk which saw the Centenary Committee present proceeds from the sale of the memorial book to the RNLI. Okay, concerns of uh, local residents over a proposed road uh, being reported on on uh, the front page of uh, the Dundalk Leader then. That's right. Uh, these are residents in Lisnada and they're expressing concerns regarding a proposed road which Louth County Council planned to build in the estate. The through road will connect the Carrickmacross Road to the Castle Blaney Road and CPOs, that's compulsory purchase orders, have already been issued to a number of house owners in both Lisnadara and Mount Avenue. Finnegale Councillor Maria Doyle is saying that residents are unhappy that they had no say on the new road which will split the estate in two. To me, and uh, the Chronicle taking a, a look at a, a robbery from a local shop. That's right, Michael. This is the robbery of a donation box which was destined for the Meath River Rescue. Uh, disgusting is the headline on the story which reveals that two women entered the London shop in Kenstown Village on Sunday afternoon. CCTV footage shows one of the women pulling and breaking the chain that secured the donation box to the counter and stuffing the box under her coat. 
Uh, and then also on the front page, the Chronicle is, is reporting that the seven Meath County councillors who either lost their seats or did not seek real election in this year's local elections are to share a total of 214 583 euro in severance payments. Okay, they're the stories uh, that caught your attention and on the front pages of uh, the local papers uh, this week. The Michael Reed Show. Let's talk to Sarah Lane Smith, who is in Navin and on the line. And a very good morning to you, Sarah, and uh, thanks uh, for joining us here on uh, the programme this morning. You understand you've stage three melanoma and uh, you're well by all accounts, are you? Yeah, I'm flying. Not a bother me now at the minute, thank God. Well, thank I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure that's great news. Uh, but yeah. uh, it, it, I'm not sure if it's better news uh, than uh, your recent uh, event. And perhaps I should congratulate you on uh, your recent marriage. Oh, thanks very much. Yeah, you're you're, you're <laughs> just back from honeymoon. Just back from Spain. Yeah, we got married out in Spain, so we we did we had a few days extra there. So it was great celebrations. It was great, great news. Excellent stuff, uh, and yeah. you're and you're doing very well, uh, as doing you say. Doing very well, yeah. Uh, how long have you been tumour free? Um, well, at the minute, I, I'm still having treatment at the minute, Michael. Um, I go up every month to have it, um, and it will be for the foreseeable, so um, which is great. Uh, but mm. as as it stands, there's no concerns, there's no evidence of disease. They're just keeping a good eye on me, monitoring me every three months. I get scans every three months, so it, it, I'm, I'm well looked after. Okay, you've had uh, a hard few years. Uh, it's uh, yeah. been a, a better experience in recent times, as I understand yeah. it, uh, because of a, a drug that you're taking. Tell us more. Yeah, well, when I was diagnosed with melanoma three years ago, um, I went through uh, a lot of jigs and reels to get where I am today. But um, when I was first diagnosed, I was stage two. So at that stage, they weren't giving you anything to, you know, any drugs. They were giving you just go home, watch and wait uh, if, if it comes back, you know, obviously, which is terrible because you're sitting, worrying, waiting, you know, any spot that comes up, you're you're worried about everything that happens. But mm. when I was pregnant, this spot appeared in my back and um, I went to two different GPs and two of them just uh, said, no, there was nothing wrong. Um, everything's fine. It's just a spot. So after that, I, I had the little baby after um, a couple of months later, I had him and uh, I went to another GP at our six week post antenatal checkup. And he said um, he didn't like the spot at all. So he was very concerned about it. He took it off. Um, we didn't wait for a dermatology um, appointment because it would take an eight weeks at the time. Mm. So he said, no way, we're not going to wait. We'll, we'll take it off. So then he gave me the bad news a few weeks later that it was malignant melanoma and had um, I had to have more tests and more surgery done to see if I had spread. So um, unfortunately it did sp- mm. spread to one lymph gland and um, I had to then have more surgery then to take all of them out. So um, at that stage I was put on one treatment um, which had no data to suggest that it would cure the cancer or whether it would come back. It was just the only thing that was available at the time it was called interferon. Uh, because of the spread to the lymph node that was the only thing available at that stage of mm. my cancer. So um, eight months later, I found a lump under my arm and uh, got all biopsies, tests, scans, and it showed a further spread to uh, under my collarbone. Um, there was nine more tumours. It was in my scapula, my collarbone, and um, all under my armpit. Mm. So another big surgery happened then, and um, I was put on a different treatment then, which had more backup. It's it kind of it's in combination now with this uh, treatment called Nivolumab, but it was called Ipilimumab. So 12 weeks into that treatment, I found another lump under my arm and they took it out and it was another melanoma. So because of all the 
reoccurrences that had happened and how quickly it was spreading. Um, they then uh, decided to put me on a course of radiation treatment, which lasted seven weeks. So it was every day for every every day for seven weeks. I went up five days a week, um, which was torture. <laughs> it was awful. I was awful skin burns. I had a week in hospital with pneumonia, burned my lung, um, all of that jazz. But uh, so straight after that, I went on to this nivolumab treatment and. Since that day, I've been absolutely brilliant. Thank right. God. Yeah. And, and I suppose uh, your story tells uh, the importance of us all checking moles and that because uh, you yeah. thought it was uh, just a molar. You, you did wonder and you had it checked. Uh, yeah, and it, discovered was, it wasn't even a mole. It was like, um, I, I, I'd always say it, it's just, it was like a Rice Krispie. It was so small. It mm. had no colour in it. It was just skin colour. Um, it wasn't like a normal freckled brown or black or um, it just popped out of nowhere. And it was ugly looking. Mm. Just, yeah. Uh, and quite often it's a small mark on the outside of uh, your skin uh, and there can be yeah. quite a, a lot more going underneath the skin. Well, this is it. Yeah. This is the whole series mm-hmm. of, of melanoma. And that's, I suppose you want to raise awareness for that as well because mm. melanoma is just not a spot that you take off and it's gone. It goes into your body so quickly and it spreads so quickly. So this is why by getting this treatment straight away, mm. I might if I had gotten it straight away, I mightn't have had to have all the surgeries, I mightn't have had to have all the radiation, but it took all that to get to the to the point where I needed the the treatment and um so that's why patients now coming forward should initially get this treatment rather than going home watching waiting, which mm. is torturous anyway, you're you're you know what I mean, it's mental torture on everybody. And anyone that is stage three now and is offered no treatment, go home and watch and wait, they're going, 50% of those people are going to get recurrence like I did. I mm. had two recurrences, you know, so it can happen. Mm. And, my God, uh, you've uh, done well fighting, but uh, as you say, you believe uh, it's as a result of going on to this drug. Uh, you were pregnant mm. with your son, Joey, uh, yeah. when you first realised, you were five months pregnant, uh, I think, yeah. uh, that there might have been a problem. It was after Joey was born uh, that you realised uh, that it, it was cancer. And uh, at that stage, you were 33 with two little yeah. girls and a little boy wondering what had happened to you. And that's uh, why you're now appealing to the government to make this drug uh, available to other people yeah well absolutely like we have a melanoma four page on, on Facebook and um, the majority of those people are young people young men and women with small families you know so mm. we just want the chance to, to for survival for to keep going for our kids to keep fighting you know it's it's, it's not about money it's all about money here and whether you're private or, or public we should be we should deserve to get the treatment that's needed and the drug itself, Nivolumab, uh, was uh, recommended uh, to be given to patients with melanoma if it has uh, spread into lymph nodes uh, by the National Centre for Pharma uh, Economics. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. So um, they're saying now, last week they're saying that um, that the drug um, could be considered for reimbursement for those of stage 3 which has spread to lymph nodes um, or had surgery to remove the cancer. Um which um, the HSC are recognising that it's effective, but the, why, I don't know why they won't reimburse it when they know it's effective for stage three patients. Mm. Well, it's expensive, of course. Yeah, it is expensive. But, you know, if the drugs are too dear to make, that makes our life so cheap. So I just don't get that. I think the system is all wrong, you know. Okay. All right. Well, I'm glad you're doing well. Uh, yeah, uh, doing and, right. Uh, right.
I'm glad uh, that uh, you're, you're enjoying such happiness in your life and congratulations <laughs> uh, on your wedding thanks as well. And uh, thanks for joining us here this morning. That's uh, Sarah Lane Smith, uh, newlywed cancer survivor and mother of three. Now, as uh, you've been hearing, it's uh, been a pretty dramatic uh, 24 hours in terms of Brexit. That's reflected in uh, the British newspapers uh, today. Johnson wins landmark Brexit vote, but is thwarted on deadline. That's uh, the headline on the front page of uh, the Financial Times today. Parliament puts brakes on Johnson's race for Brexit. That's uh, the front page of The Guardian. Brexit in purgatory, according to the Daily Telegraph, and uh, it's everybody else except the British Prime Minister who's getting the blame for this. Trust trust this lot to turn triumph into disaster. That's uh, the front page of uh, the Daily Mail, which says there was a huge boost as Boris won an historic vote, but MPs torpedo do or die Halloween deadline. Now we're at the mercy of the EU over extension. Nothing to do with Boris Johnson. Uh, he's coming out of this very well, it would seem. Boris puts Brexit bill on hold, according to the Metro newspaper. The Mirror says PM's Brexit horror. Halloween target is ditched. Johnson's bid to railroad his deal through by October 31st blocked by MPs. Again, not Johnson's fault. Johnson's Halloween Brexit in tatters, according to I. Uh, yeah, but no, but Bojo win, then timetable wrecked, according to The Sun, uh, which is taking a similar slant on all of this. Historic deal, but MPs spoil it with yet more dithering, according to the Daily Express, which says PM wins joyful victory, only for comments to dash hopes of October 31st exit. Seems like it's everybody else's fault except Boris Johnson's and frustrated PM faces Brexit delay according to the Times newspaper on its front page today. That's uh, just uh, how it's all being interpreted in the UK this morning. Somewhat predictable, some might say. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie is back with some of uh, the calls and comments that have been coming to us this morning. Uh, you've uh, a few comments for I people sure there. I have. Michael mm-hmm. Damien from Dundalk. I'm going to kick off with him. He phoned in in relation to the voting debacle and he says this is a storm and a teacup, Michael. It will blow over. But once again, valuable time is being spent on the ridiculous when we have serious issues to address. Timmy Dooley was in the building. He had been in the chamber. What is the difference to him being at the back of the chamber or just being outside the door? If he wasn't there altogether, I might say that there was something amiss. I'd rather that the TDs were focusing on the number of homeless children on the streets. That should be the priority, not this farce, says Damien from Dundalk. Okay, well, I suppose uh, the vote that took place uh, could be challenged. The result of the vote could be challenged and uh, therein lies the seriousness of it because you're not allowed to do it by way of uh, the Constitution. Uh, You're constitutionally required to be in the chamber. Yes, Declan phoned in on the same topic and he says that he is sick to his teeth of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. They help each other to keep power but yet you have all this political point scoring Michael. We're all sick of it just because there's an election coming up. You can read them like a book and at the end of it all then it will be the same old, same old. One will probably prop up the other again. Mm, quite possibly. <laughs> Thanks for that. Mm. A text from Liz in at the boy who says regarding the fake voting, sitting in your seat and you vote if you are not in your seat, 
You can't vote. It's not that difficult to understand, says Liz. Okay. <laughs> Good enough. Okay, moving then to uh, another listener from East Mead phoned in. What I can't get over is how many TDs actually sit in the wrong seats. Can they not just put names on the seats or something like that? Would that not make some sense? My God, it's hard to know. It's hard that they don't know the number that they sit in when they're probably sitting in there most days. Okay, well, let's uh, turn our attention to uh, something uh, a little bit different. Uh, As you've been hearing, a boil water notice has been put in place for some 600,000 people in parts of Fingal areas in Dublin City Council, parts of South Dublin County Council, parts of Kildare and Dunboyne in County Meath. John O'Donoghue, Regional Operations Manager with Irish Water, joins us now. And a very good morning, John. Thanks for joining us. Uh, this is a, a significant problem for you, obviously. Oh, yes, and thanks, Miles, for the opportunity. Yes, it is, of course. It's a very serious issue for us. Uh, we have a boil water notice in place since yesterday yesterday evening. Unfortunately, we had a mechanical failure at the uh, leaks the water treatment plant and that supplies obviously large areas of all of Fingal, it supplies mm. parts of Dublin as well as you say and, and the likes of Dunboyne, Clonee areas, Kilcloon areas in Mead as well as well as, as well as Selbridge and those in Leakslip in, in Kildare so we have the problem is, is long rectified now at this stage mm. but we would have a, a certain volume of water which we got into the network which would take time to work its way through which wouldn't have to rece- receive the, the, the I suppose the treatment, the proper treatment that we would have liked, it's probably about 10 12% volume-wise yeah. of the overall daily production at the plant. And because, it, you know, the, it, we have two sort of separate plants, we have an old plant and a new plant, so, you know, which we're upgrading the, the, the old plant at the moment. But, uh, we, you know, I suppose because we can't separate it out, really, it's the only safe thing to do in terms of the public public safety and public health is to have a boil water notice for the entire zone. So, unfortunately, it does impact quite a large number of people, but we are working in in consultation with the HSE and we're meeting them again later on this morning now to get it lifted as quickly as possible. Obviously we're, we're sampling and all of that and hopefully, you know, with those results turn up okay and uh, hopefully we'll be in a position to get it lifted uh, as soon as possible, you know, in the next and, number of days. And that means that no water should be consumed or there should be no risk of consuming water unless that water has been boiled. Uh, in other words, you shouldn't even be brushing your teeth with this water in case you swallow some of it. That's right. That, that's correct, yeah. That's right. Uh, we have a list of there where you're, mm-hmm. you know, preparation of food, salads and all that, with drinking, obviously, and making of ice as well. So it, it is important that mm-hmm. we that the instructions are, are followed there. We have it uh, up on the website. Uh, and why is that? What, what, what is the risk if somebody does consume this water? Well, as I, what, what normally happens in, while the disinfection process is, you know, we still have secondary disinfection as well off our reservoirs, but I suppose there is, uh, we, we are testing for uh, cryptosporidium in particular, and that there is, uh, I suppose... A, a risk, obviously, because the the, the treatment system was was somewhat compromised for for a short time. Uh, so again, acting in the in the total interest of of, of public health, uh, that's why we want to ensure that uh, nobody obviously nobody consumes the water without 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 boiling it. You know, and that's mm-hmm. why we, we have where we are at the moment, and we are trying to get it lifted as quickly as possible. You know, and we are communicating with all, all the relevant stakeholders as well. And we you know we've been in touch with vulnerable customers, large water users. Mm-hmm. obviously dealing with the HEC nursing homes and facilities and schools and all of that as well so trying to get the message out there you know. Uh, and if somebody was uh, to consume it or if somebody has already consumed uh, this contaminated water uh, they may be suffering from diarrhoea I take it or, or vomiting or 
uh, cramps. Well, I suppose the, the only, I suppose, like we're not obviously the health experts. The only advice we can give there is, is to consult with their GP immediately if they have any issues or if they think it's anywhere related to water to, to immediately consult their mm. their GP and uh, take it from there. You know. Okay, but there is uh, some significant risk to people. There's uh, a risk of kidney failure. Is there? Well, again, we're not the health experts on that, so I, I wouldn't be able to comment a, at all on that. As, as I say, this is a precautionary as much as anything else. So we want to ensure that people follow the, the guidelines and we do our bit to get it lifted as quickly as, as possible, you know, and we consult with everybody involved and get a get message out there as, as widely as we possibly can, you know. OK, and when do you hope uh, to lift uh, this boil water notice? Well, Michael, we're, we're meeting again with, with the HSE this morning and we will we'll be obviously having extensive testing is being carried out on the network itself and uh, you know we'll be monitoring over the next obviously over the next number of days and if all the results come out okay then you know we'll be hopefully be in a good position to have lifted within the next number of days anyway you know okay it's thanks be sooner rather than later okay thanks for that uh, okay, for okay. joining us as well for that matter John O'Donoghue Regional Operations Manager with Irish Water now let's go back uh, to the phones uh, you have some more calls for us I have indeed Michael and I'm going to go back to the interview at the top of the show with Gavin Riley Margaret from Kells phoned in Interest, so interesting to hear your guests say that it's common practice for TDs to cast votes for one another because they can't get their seat for whatever reason in the chamber. What I'd like to know is who allows this to happen when it was so obviously going on, according to your guest. Mm. Is there nobody responsible for actually ensuring the proper running of the dial and the votes? No, well, I mean, as uh, we've been hearing, it's uh, an accepted practice uh, that people might be speaking uh, to a minister or in another part of the room for whatever the reason is and ask somebody uh, to press the button on their behalf. Betty from High text in, Good morning. Whatever happened to one man, one vote? Is it any wonder the country's in the state? It's in. How can we trust the TDs, says Betty. Okay. Uh, Anne says it doesn't matter whether the person is inside the chamber or not. Nobody should press somebody else's button. How many times has this happened over the years? How many legislations were passed by this and brought in? Finnegale, including Leo, might think they can pull the wool over our eyes by claiming they only did it when the person was in the chamber. But to me, that's a load of bull, says oh, Anne. Okay, I'm glad you said that. I thought you were <laughs> going to say something else altogether. No, I could okay. have, but yeah, I didn't. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. Sean from Drogheda says, if Fianna Fáil had any bottle, they'd pull the plug on Finnegale. Finnegale has been goading them for a long time now. I'm a lifelong member of Fianna Fáil and I'm disgusted that they're allowing Finnegale to dictate everything and treat Fianna Fáil with so little regard. Jerry says, Michael, I don't know why he thinks this, I think you're mad for an election. You you seem to be mentioning it the whole time. Why bother Michael, as it will be the same result, says Jerry. Well, that's uh, quite possibly the truth, uh, but it, it does look as though there is uh, a possibility of uh, an election in uh, the coming weeks. Okay, we'll mm. go then to Eileen, who says that when it comes to a general election, when it does happen, Michael, she is saying that people should put it up to Fine Gael about their record on housing. It's appalling. The number of homeless people has risen under Fine Gael's watch and when they come to your doorstep, they should be held accountable. Eileen says that she's deeply troubled by the homeless crisis and especially 
the number of homeless children that are now mm. on their streets and she doesn't feel that there's enough sense of urgency about dealing with the problem that more social housing needs to be built and it needs to be built fast. She yeah, says. well over 4,000 uh, children who are officially homeless in this country, over 10,000 people who are officially homeless and uh, a lot more besides uh, who don't factor into the official numbers. Teresa from County Meath was watching the Clare Byrne show the night before last and she was in tears over it, she says, watching parents queuing up for food for their children. Mm. What is happening in this country, Michael, when you see this type of uh, thing going on? Did you ever think that we would see this day? It just makes you wonder where the priorities are. Yeah, well, it's a shameful situation. Every time it's mentioned, uh, the government says uh, it's throwing everything it has at it and it is making progress, uh, but we have to be patient and it'll take time, but in time uh, they'll get on top of it. Seamus from Dundalk says that he's been closely following what's going on in the UK in relation to Brexit and just wonders, Michael, is it a thing now that it will definitely be the extension, a three-month extension, or is there a possibility that Boris will still try and go without a deal. Seamus is worried about yeah, that. Well, there is a possibility that he will try and go without a, a deal, uh, but I'm not sure uh, that he'll be permitted to do that uh, by the MPs in uh, the House of Commons. Uh, there seems to be a very strong will against that happening. Uh, so I think it's most likely that there will be an extension, and I think it's almost definite mm. at this stage that there will be a general election in the coming weeks, possibly uh, not until December, possibly a Christmas election. The 12th of December is a date that they're talking about at the moment. Oh, lucky them. Mm. <laughs> well, we'll finish on that one, Michael. Yeah, well, we'll hear more on that today uh, because uh, I think Boris Johnson is to make a, a statement uh, to the House of Commons uh, this afternoon about uh, the state of play and where he hopes to take it from here. He'll have heard from Europe. Uh, we may hear about uh, an extension or his moves uh, to get a general election. Of course, uh, he will look for a general election. He may not get his way, as was uh, the case previously, because uh, it is a different system in the UK and uh, he will need uh, the support of two-thirds of uh, the MPs or there are other ways around it uh, which uh, he may have to avail of uh, but there'll be more about that I'm sure in the coming years or decades (laughs) or lifetimes Never never mind the coming hours Never mind the coming hours in the coming lifetimes Now, we'll hear just a a little bit of what happened in uh, the House of Commons yesterday. As you know, uh, the government asked MPs there to agree to proceeding the withdrawal bill. And there was some opposition, it has to be said. We'll hear some of that opposition now from uh, some some of uh, the unionist MPs, DUP MPs, Nigel Dodds, Sammy Wilson and Gavin Robinson. Is he he saying that at the end of December 2020 that Northern Ireland will not go into the protocol if there's a free trade agreement and that if we are in the protocol and a free trade agreement is agreed that we will automatically come out of it and that that will be written into law. But paragraph 8 of Article 13 states quite clearly that any subsequent arrangement between the United Kingdom and the Union shall indicate the parts of this protocol which may, which it supersedes and that the EU will have a say in that. How can he then claim to this House that there is total freedom of decision on this? How can he square The pledge he has given that says Northern Ireland can fully benefit from free trade arrangements 
with the provisions in the agreement he agreed at Article 13.8 that require the EU to have a say in whether we yes. succeed from the protocol arrangements. Uh, as, as he knows, uh, there, is, there are special provisions uh, in the uh, agreement that apply to Northern Ireland in respect, as I say, of trade in goods and, and uh, sanitary and phytosanitary measures, a single e- electricity market. Uh, and the benefit of, those, of, of that alignment, that temporary four-year alignment, Mr Speaker, is of course that it allows us to avoid a hard border in Northern Ireland. That is its great... That's uh, the British Prime Minister responding uh, to the concerns of DUP MPs, Nigel Dodds, Sammy Wilson and Gavin Robinson yesterday. And the bizarre part of it all is uh, that the withdrawal deal agreement was put to the House of Commons and Boris Johnson won the vote. Uh, And uh, he did so because uh, the ERG uh, were not swayed by the DUP. The DUP did uh, oppose it, but uh, the European Research Group supported Mr Johnson. So after winning a Brexit vote, which was most unusual for Boris Johnson... Uh, Boris Johnson was none too happy because the MPs then said that they were asking him to deal with it too quickly and they voted against the timetable for introducing uh, the bill and as a result of that we find ourselves in a situation now where Boris Johnson said he would pause the legislation and it's expected that this will result in a general election. Let me say in response, Mr Speaker, how welcome it is, uh, even joyful, uh, that for the first time in this long saga, this House has actually accepted its uh, responsibilities uh, together, come together and embraced a deal. I I congratulate honourable members across the House on the scale of our collective achievement, because just a few weeks ago, hardly anybody believed that we could reopen uh, the withdrawal agreement, let alone abolish the backstop. That is indeed what they were saying. And certainly nobody thought that we could secure the approval of the House for a new deal. And we should not uh, overlook the significance of this moment. And I pay particular tribute to those members of the House who were sceptical and who had difficulties and doubts and who decided to place the national interest ahead of any other consideration. But, Mr Speaker, I must express my disappointment that the House has again uh, voted for delay, rather than a timetable that would have guaranteed that the UK would be in a position to leave the EU on October the 31st with a deal. And we now face further uncertainty, and the EU must now make up their minds over how to answer Parliament's request for a delay. And the first consequence, Mr Speaker, is that the government must take the only responsible course and accelerate our preparations for a no-deal outcome. But secondly, I will, speak, I will speak to EU member states about their intentions until they have reached a decision. Until we, uh, they have reached a decision, I must say, we will pause this legislation. So it's paused... The result is, uh, if uh, Donald Tusk, uh, his recommendation is uh, accepted, an extension will be given, and uh, undoubtedly the Prime Minister will be pushing for a general election. Let's come back home, though, 
to a motion that was put uh, to Dáil Éireann last night uh, when the House was asked to vote in favour of uh, the establishment of a child maintenance service for Ireland. Uh, the motion was uh, tabled by Sinn Féin TD John Brady, who's his party's spokesperson on social protection. And uh, a very good morning to you and uh, thanks uh, for joining us here on the programme this morning. This would help lone parents get maintenance payments under three different criteria. Perhaps you'd outline for us uh, the three ways uh, that this service would help lone parents? Well, I, I suppose the, the motion that we brought forward uh, to the Dáil yesterday and it was debated uh, yesterday evening um, would, I suppose, uh, see the establishment of a, a child maintenance service. And we know that that is, is badly uh, lacking here in uh, the state. And we know that uh, lone parent families are, are five times higher than uh, families headed by two parents uh, to live in, in consistent poverty. Um, and we know that from international, um, I, I suppose, evidence that uh, maintenance payments go a long way towards lifting uh, children out of uh, con- consistent poverty. And the fact that we don't have a, a statutory child maintenance service here within the state, um, that um, lone parent families are, are badly being uh, let down. And, and the current um, I, I, I suppose arrangements that are, in, that are in place are wholly unsatisfactory. Essentially, we, we, we see uh, lone parents being obliged to seek uh, maintenance payments from the, the non-custodial parent as a, a condition of receiving the one-parent family payment. Um, and ultimately, the only means uh, to do that it has to be said that there's many mm-hmm. uh, good parents out there that will, you know, they, they, they step up and they provide whatever. Um, money is is necessary for their children but unfortunately there are some that don't and the only means that uh, the uh, parent has is to go through the the, the court system Mm. and having listened to so many lone parents and the horrific um, circumstances and situations they have to endure going into the the, the court uh, system and yesterday my contribution I I, I spoke about one uh, lone parent Jessica Bowers who um, has been very open and, and using her horrific um, case to highlight how badly um, the system is when, when she was forced to go into uh, the courts to seek a, a maintenance payment. Um, you know, she was forced to do that essentially by the Department of Social Protection within a week of, of doing that. Her ex-partner uh, physically assaulted her and essentially left her uh, for, 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 for dead. Um so the, the the arrangements there at the moment are wholly un, 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 unsatisfactory, mm-hmm. and even to the degree that where um, a, a child maintenance order is awarded in the court, if they manage to get through the, the, the court system, many lone parents don't want to go in there because you know they might be coming from a, um, a, a domestic violence uh, situation, or they just don't want to face the the, the, the ex partner. Um, mm-hmm. If a child maintenance uh, payment is, is awarded, it's taken as a, a, a means even though it may not necessarily uh, be paid, it's taken as a means and has a, a, an impact then on other social welfare payments. And this would allow people to circumvent the courts. Uh, it would act as a mediation system and come to an arrangement with the non-custodial parent. Uh, it could uh, put in place the amount that would have to be paid and if those payments stopped, it could pursue somebody to make sure that they resume paying to the parent who, who's uh, looking after the child. Suppose, my, myself and my part, we've put forward what we would like to, to, to see uh, being put in, in 
place and we've worked with, I suppose, the organisations that work with known parent families, uh, Spark and, mm. and One Family, who support our emotion. And whilst we're not trying to impose the model that we think would work, what we've asked uh, government to do is to uh, fund research into examining the best international practice because we know there are systems out there, statutory child maintenance systems that actually work that benefit the lone parents and particularly the children. So we want to see uh, funding put in place uh, to, to examine best international practice when it comes to determining, collecting, transferring and, and mm-hmm. pursuing child maintenance payments, but also to engage, uh, the government needs to engage with all the, uh, the, the, the key stakeholders in this funded project because... Um, Minister Regina Doherty has said she's put aside 150,000. She's going to appoint a, a judge-led panel mm. to have a look at this with a view of, of creating guidelines. And long parents don't need guidelines. What they need is a, a, an actual maintenance service, like is in place in, in, in the north and across the water in uh, Britain. Um, you know, it's, it's taken out of the court system. Um, because when you go into the court system, um, there's no guidelines there for judges in awarding mm-hmm. um, the, the maintenance payment. So it really depends on the judge you get on, 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 on the day um, and not based on, um, I, I, I suppose, uh, need or, or, or circumstances or anything. So you're unhappy with the government response. Uh, Finian McGrath responded on behalf of Regina Doherty and he made exactly those points uh, that €150,000 is uh, being allocated uh, to conduct a study into what happens elsewhere, uh, an international study, and that that will be uh, done by a group which will be led by a judge. He said that your motion didn't recognise that or the existing supports that are available to lone parents. Well, in the Minister's response last night, they went to great pains pointing out some of uh, the increases in social welfare payments that have Mm. been made over the last number of years. It didn't, uh, I I suppose, address one of the main issues that has has caused a lot of poverty for for low-parent families, and that was the cut in in 2012, which was introduced by uh, the then Labour Minister, Joan Burton, which directly impacted on on low-parent family uh, families right across the, the, the state. So whilst they rolled out a, a number of measures that have been taken, they're not solely uh, for, for lone parent families. There are increases in, in social welfare payments uh, uh, across the board. Um, so what we didn't get last night was a, a commitment that they're going to do something in a, a timely manner. Um, the government ultimately abstained on the, the, the motion. We received uh, cross-party support from all other areas within the uh, within the dial last night but the government chose uh, to uh, abstain so an abstention is you know it's, it's not supporting the motion in okay. fact it's, it's uh, opposing the, the, the motion which is, is bitterly mm-hmm. disappointing it has to be said so it, it would we, appear we, to be we, the we case need, yeah. we mm-hmm. need time frames um, you know the minister uh, was very quick to um, you know um, uh, Minister McGrath read out the, the statement from Regina Doherty and she was very quick at, at trying to slap herself on the back and claim praise um, for all the work she's done on this over the last number of years. And it has to be said that uh, government, and particularly the minister, has been dragged literally to this point where they've 
allocate the money. They have done absolutely nothing in addressing that. Okay, but uh, as Finney McGrath said, 150,000 has been allocated uh, to uh, allow for a study to be conducted by a judge-led group. We may hear some of what the Minister had to say in response uh, to your motion later in the programme, if time allows. But we have to leave it there for the moment, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us here on the programme this morning. That's uh, John Brady, Sinn Féin TD, and spokesperson on social protection. The Michael Reed Show. Now, just uh, returning uh, to uh, the Sinn Féin motion to establish a child maintenance uh, service, as uh, John Brady, uh, the TD who tabled the motion, said uh, the Minister, Finney McGrath, who responded on behalf of the government, on behalf of the Minister for Social Protection, Regina Doherty, did spend a long time in the doll talking about how much money the government spends on lone parents and how that money is spent and how certain services have improved and spending has increased. But he did also recognise that there is a problem with lone parents getting maintenance payments from their partners and that the groups such as Spark and Alone, the groups that John Brady spoke about, the one-parent family groups that he spoke about earlier on, have supported this legislation in the Dáil. Stakeholders have highlighted that child maintenance poses serious personal and administrative blocks within the social protection and legal systems. Delays in legal proceedings due to the cycles of agreement, defaults and pursuits clog up the court service and cause unnecessary delays, and I accept that argument, and hardships for parents and for children. Requirements for seeking maintenance and liable relative provisions may also cause issues between parents over and above the difficulties and uh, and hardships they already face. The Minister for Employment Affairs and Social Protection shares some of the concerns, and I share some of the concerns, expressed by the stakeholder groups about how the maintenance, maintenance system currently operates, and she believes that it is timely to review these arrangements to see what can be learned from international best practice. The Minister has already held meetings with some of the stakeholder groups and will continue to engage with them on this matter in the future. Right, that's uh, Finian McGrath responding on behalf of Regina Doherty in the Dáil last night. And as mentioned earlier, the Minister Regina Doherty has allocated €150,000 to her department to construct, conduct a study into international practice in terms of making sure that maintenance payments are made to lone parents and that a judge-led group is looking at all of this. If we return to Brexit, uh, for a, a moment or two. Uh, as you know, uh, there's a, a very strange situation now where Boris Johnson has received support for his agreement for the bill that uh, uh, outlines uh, the agreement, uh, but uh, he hasn't received support for how that will be debated and modified, perhaps, uh, by the House of Commons. Uh, What all of that means is uh, that he's paused the legislation as he puts it. That probably means there'll be an extension to the deadline of uh, the 31st of October, and it probably means uh, that there will be a general election, probably or possibly or maybe not. Let's uh, hear what Nigel Farage thinks will happen. Now, to leave on the 31st of October is very difficult almost impossible, impossible to leave with this agreement, just impossible. Uh, We could leave, of course, 
on no deal. He said he'd step up EU and no deal preparations. But, well, if, if somebody in the European Union did veto it, then we could. It's possible, but extremely unlikely. Says he's going to pause the legislation. Is he going to go for a general election? Is he going to drop it? Or is he, after 48 hours, going to say, Do you know what, I'm going to ask for an extension? And I, I think, having got a majority for this treaty, I mean, I think it's wretched, personally, but having got a majority for it, I think he'll pause for a day or two, and he will then try and bring it back and accept we're going to leave a few weeks later. That's what I think is going to happen. Now, that, of course, is before we get the amendments on things like the Customs Union, and he may think, well, do you know what, actually, they're going to wreck it through amendments anyway. But, but my, something tells me, right now, he's going to stick with it. Yeah, not too sure, Nigel. Nigel Farage there, I think uh, he may think uh, they're going to try and wreck it through the amendments and throw the whole thing out and look to force a general election. That could force an election here or could feed into the thinking uh, that uh, the time is right uh, but uh, there's certainly other issues at hand uh, for the government to deal with as we've been speaking about uh, this morning uh, the Taoiseach Leo Varadkar offered an apology yesterday in the Dáil uh, to women and their families who were affected by the cervical check debacle. As Taoiseach on behalf of the state I apologise to the women and their loved ones who suffered from a litany of failures in how cervical screening in our country operated over many years. I do so having listened to many of those affected, and I do so guided by the Scali Inquiry Report. Today we say sorry to those whose lives were shattered. We say sorry to those whose lives were destroyed, and to those whose lives could have been different. We know that cancer screening programmes cannot detect all cancers, but we also know that many failures have taken place. We are sorry for the failures of clinical governance, sorry for the failures of leadership and management, sorry for the failure to tell the whole truth and to do so in a timely manner, sorry for the humiliation, the disrespect and deceit, the false reassurance, the attempts to play down the seriousness of this debacle by some and inaccuracies and claims from others, all of which added to confusion and public concern. We apologise to those who survived and still bear the scars, both physically and mentally, as do their families. We apologise to those who are here in our presence today, to those watching from home who have always kept this matter to themselves. And we apologise to those who have passed on and cannot be here. We acknowledge the failure that took place with cervical check. Today's apology, I know, is too late for some who were affected, and for others, it will never be enough. Today's apology is offered to all the people the state let down, and to their families who paid the price for those failings as well. A broken service, broken promises, broken lives, a debacle that left a country heartbroken, a system that was doomed to fail. We apologise to our wives, our daughters, our sisters, and our mothers to the men who lost the centre of their lives and every day have to pick up the pieces, the single fathers and grandparents, to the children who will always have a gaping hole in their lives, to all those grieving for what has been taken from them, the happy days that will never be. A state apology may not provide closure, 
but I hope it will help to heal. I've met with some of you and your families in recent weeks, and I've heard your stories told to me with dignity, courage and integrity. Families turned upside down. The grief of losing loved ones. The guilt of all those who survived, thinking that they're the lucky ones. Those who've lost their jobs and careers, their ability to have children, their feeling of self-worth. Those who feel mutilated inside and those who feel they've robbed their partner out of the possibility of having a child, a future stolen from them. A state apology will not repair all that's been broken, nor restore all that's been lost, but we can make it count for something. Thanks to Dr. Scally's three reports into cervical check, we've discovered a lot of truths. We now know a lot of the facts, but there are some things we will never know. But what we do know about, we can act on. And the government has accepted all of the recommendations that were set out in Dr. Scally's reports and all will be implemented. Now, in the words of Vicky Phelan, I too want something good to come out of all of this. Speaking as a doctor as well as a politician, a brother and a son, we need to build a different and much better culture in our health service, one that treats patients with respect and always tells the truth. One that is never paternalistic because doctor doesn't always know best. We must share full information with our patients, admit mistakes and put the person first. There is no information about a patient that a patient should not know. And no patient should ever feel stonewalled by the system. We should never fail to act or fail to act out of fear of litigation or recrimination, even if those fears are real. Taoiseach Leo Vracker apologising on behalf of uh, the state uh, to the women and their families who were affected by the cervical check debacle. But now that uh, the apology has been given, now that uh, these people have received a state apology, what next? Well, the Taoiseach went on to say that what he hopens, hopes happens next is that this never happens again. What happened to so many women and their families should not have happened. While every case was not negligence, every case was a lost opportunity for an earlier diagnosis and treatment. It was a failure of our health service, our state, its agencies, its systems and its culture. Now we've found the truth and the facts. We're making changes to put things right. We need now to restore trust and rebuild relationships that have been severely damaged. On behalf of the government and the state, I'm sorry that all this happened, and I apologise to all those hurt or wronged, and we vow now to make sure that it never happens to anyone else ever again. The state apology uh, to the women and uh, their families affected uh, by the cervical check debacle delivered by Antishok Leo Vratker. The Michael Reid Show. Now, it is uh, to become illegal to sell cigarettes, e-cigarettes, to under-18s. Cigarette machines are to be banned. It will become illegal to sell tobacco where children are likely to be present. A new licensing system is to be put in shops uh, that sell e-cigarettes or tobacco products. And uh, there will be fixed penalty notices and a name and shame list for shops which uh, fail uh, to obey by the rules. 
rules. Uh, these measures were approved by Cabinet yesterday. Uh, the uh, proposal obviously being brought forward by the Minister for Health, uh, Simon Harris. John Mallon, Forest Ireland spokesperson, is on the line with us. And a very good morning to you, John, and uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, it seems as though uh, it's going to be much harder to be a smoker in this country and uh, the alternative e-cigarettes uh, will be available to fewer. What do you make of all of that? I think it's the height of foolishness, Michael. Thank you for your invitation and good morning to you. Um, the, the, the two separate issues uh, there. The, the vending machines, um, fair enough. That's all that that's going to mean is that people that normally buy from a vending machine will buy in bulk uh, from the black market instead and they'll get, they'll get their cigarettes at half the price. That's all that does. Uh, it destroys, it, it, it hurts business, um, legitimate business that pays taxes to the government and encourages uh, ordinary smokers to do what they've maybe not done to date, and that's to buy from, from the illegal people. Um, the vaping thing is a completely different case in point. You, your listeners, uh, for their benefits, let me explain that all of the, um, the risks associated with smoking come from the smoke from a lit cigarette. When you change the com- chemical composition of anything, house fires uh, are deadly toxin, uh, toxic. Uh, when you burn anything, even barbecues give off carcinogens. So it's always to do with the smoke. Lighting the tobacco and the resultant smoke is where the danger lies. Uh, now, in the case of e-cigarettes, it was a Chinese guy trying to give up smoking that actually invented them. He came up with this uh, fake cigarette-like effort. But it's about as similar to smoking a cigarette as, say, drinking a glass of Ribena to a glass of wine. Um, they're not particularly satisfying, but they are an aid to quitting. They are something when you're reaching for a cigarette or you're desperate for one, you've been off them for a few days and you want one, um, they are a way... Uh, to, to get rid of that urge uh, and they're wonderful, they work as opposed to the pharmaceutical nicotine which apparently doesn't work mm. uh, So, But there's that, no need for under 18s to smoke them, is there? Sorry? There's no need for under 18s to smoke them, is there? But you, you're using the term smoke there is no smoke <coughs> These cigarettes are, are badly named uh, I wouldn't have called them cigarettes at all um, They're an electronic device with a battery and liquid and the battery heats the liquid and uh, mm. gives off resulting steam um, any the, the, these efforts to undermine them, nobody is, is saying what's dangerous in them. You can go through the, the ingredients in an e-cigarette very simply, uh, and there's nothing particularly dangerous in, in any of it. Uh, nicotine is perfectly safe, as we now know, after years of being told it's toxic. It isn't. Uh, nicotine, but the, 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 the um, former head of Ash UK has said that nicotine is similar to caffeine, both in, in effect and, and uh, in pleasurable uh, experience. They're, 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 they're very similar. They're, they're quite mild. OK, but the experts say the jury is out. It's the combination of the ingredients and some of the ingredients are unknown uh, and the effects uh, are, are not known and won't be known for years uh, to come. Uh, well, why, the, the, why, why should they be available to under-18s? No, no, this is mudding the water, Michael. Um, I'll, I'll come back to the under-18s. Uh, the, 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 the deaths and the problems that happened in one city in the USA... Uh, were people uh, changing, they they were misusing e-cigarettes. They were taking out the e-liquid and putting in instead a cannabis-based product with the active ingredient THC. And they effectively got a bad dose from drug dealers on the the streets that killed them. Now, they were not e-cigarettes. They were cannabis cigarettes. Um, The e-cigarettes in Europe uh, are are completely covered by by the the, uh, EU, EU regulations. So they're regulated, they're not in the U.S. That's the big difference between the two. So what's in, there is nothing in any of the liquids in an e-cigarette, mm. uh, specifically the presented danger. Well, that's true. 
to some extent uh, well, that, no there, th- that there was the problem with cannabis, uh, but there are also uh, recording incidents of lung injuries from vaping that did not involve cannabis uh, from Japan to England uh, to America, where uh, people had severe problems uh, and uh, have uh, led to this theory that this needs to be explored further but um, let's talk about under 18s uh, regard- yeah, I'll, I'll come back to the under 18s and I'll just deal with that one There's um, Professor Michael Siegel he has been um, an anti-smoking activist now for almost 40 years, he was one of the early people in the States that was trying to get smoking banned um, he is completely 100% he's, he's a professor of medicine he's 100% behind these cigarettes uh, he's looked at them, he's looked in depth at the ingredients of them, uh, and he says that basically uh, people who are now showing, using e-cigs, uh, showing up uh, with lung problems, he said, what do you expect? These will be ex-smokers. The e-cigarette doesn't attract anybody else. There are many of your listeners out there this morning have never smoked. I don't think any of them would be tempted to go in and buy an e-cigarette, the apparatus, and get started on it. There's no attraction there. Similarly for children, there's no attraction um, so these things are nonsense. Under 18s, fine. There's no difficulty. It's not that the e-cigarette represents a danger to them, but there's no difficulty. Uh, ban them to under 18s. But I think you and I know in the real world, when children want to get their hands on something, mm. uh, they, they will if they want to. Well, there's experts uh, uh, everywhere, and experts uh, differ. And Stanton Lance is a, a, another expert, a tobacco researcher at the Centre for Tobacco Control Research and Education at the University of California in San Francisco. And he says uh, that uh, there were early warning signs that were missed. Uh, there's 15 recorded cases now of severe lung damage uh, and uh, he talks about a 42 year old woman as an example uh, who had breathing problems coughs and a, a fever hazy white patches resembling ground glass covered about a third of her lungs on chest scans suggesting extensive inflammation strange fat deposits clotted her lungs uh, and her immune cells and after ruling everything else out they concluded that she had a form of pneumonia more commonly seen they say in carnival show fire breathers are people who have inhaled mineral oil okay that's uh, so that's one person across the whole world (coughs) stanton glance incidentally has been somebody who's who's been uh, made a huge um, um, luxurious living uh, persecuting smokers for years but it's it's if there are dangers uh, associated with these cigarettes, uh, as, as Professor Michael Siegel points out, it's the danger that they'll be, they'll be mis, mis, misused or that the public will be misled. Because in reality, the people who are buying them mm. are ex-smokers. They could be people who smoke for 20, 30 years. Uh, they could be well, they, they haven't been smoking for 20 years if they're 18 or 17. No, no, if they're 18 or 17, no, they haven't, obviously. So, so, so why, why would you, they you want... You mentioned a woman why, at 42 years of age. Yes, but why, why, why should they be uh, available to under-18s? But I, I said to you, I have no problem with the ban on them. Uh, but mm. I don't think... I think if there's a, a fellow or a girl of 18 today who's smoking, uh, e-cigarettes should be something that they'd be pointed at to get off the cigarettes. I agree with that. Uh, if you want to ban that, then let them smoke away. There are many, many people, and this is the big risk with, with uh, undermining e-cigarettes. There are many, many people currently, myself included, um, who have been off. I've been off cigarettes now for uh, over two years. 
using an e-cigarette. I find it wonderful. Uh, I often do get a craving to smoke. The e-cigarette is there and I have that instead and that, that's the craving gone. Now, if they're taken away or undermined or made too expensive, it would be just as easy to go back smoking again and to hell with them. Uh, because, you know, for years smokers have been urged to quit and now that many of them are making a serious and, and, and earnest effort, a genuine effort to quit using this device, and it's been shown to be the best single way of, of quitting, uh, if they're then undermined as a result of that, what do you think will happen? People will just drift back to cigarettes again. It's easier, they're more satisfying, um, and, and, and you just forget all okay. about it. I think the government is shooting itself in the foot. It should really be promoting e-cigarettes as a device to quit smoking. Okay, John, I have to leave there. Thanks for joining us. John Mallon of Forest Ireland brings our programme to its conclusion. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax. And think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.